The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into our beloved operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. This coming Friday, there is a very exciting season premiere happening at the Metropolitan Opera. Verdi's Simon Bocanegra will come to the stage for the first time this season, and the whole run of the opera will feature maestro James Levine on the podium and legendary tenor, now baritone, Placido Domingo singing the title role. In preparation for this special musical event, today's podcast episode features Bridget Paolucci's Talking About Opera lecture on Simon Bocanegra, And this is really a chance to dive into an opera that you might not be incredibly familiar with. This is certainly one of Verdi's more obscure works. It doesn't pop up every single season, although it is certainly loved for the different musical aspects that Verdi brings to this, and you'll hear all about that in this lecture. It is also an opera that Verdi revised later on in his career, so we have an early version of it and we have a later version of it. And also another little interesting factoid about this opera is that part of the reason why it's not done very often is because it's a little bit difficult to cast this opera. There is quite a large cast, and out of the large cast, you have only one main female singing role, and then you have one secondary female singing role, and that is the maid to the leading lady. But besides those two female roles, the rest of the cast are all men. You need two baritones, two basses, and two tenors. So it's not an easy thing to pull off, but if you have the men to do it, then it's certainly worth it. And I think we definitely have that at the Met this season, a fantastic cast. So without any further delay, I'll let you dive into the opera with Bridget Paolucci. This is from our Talking About Opera archives. On March 12, 1857, Simone Boccanegra premiered at the La Fenice Opera House in Venice. It was a fiasco. Composer Giuseppe Verdi was despondent over the hostile reaction to his new opera, and a month later wrote to a friend that he was unable to work. Have the Venetians calmed down? asked the 43-year-old Verdi in his letter. Whoever would have thought that this poor Boccanegra, good or bad opera that it may be, should have created such an uproar. The libretto for Simón Bocanegra was based on a play by the Spanish dramatist Antonio García Gutiérrez. The play is set in the mid-14th century, during a struggle between Italian city-states, a struggle that continued into Verdi's time. In 1856, when he composed Simón Bocanegra, the movement for Italian unity, known as the Risorgimento, had already begun, but it still had a long way to go. Verdi was totally committed to the Risorgimento, and this opera gave him an opportunity to plead for that cause. He asked Francesco Maria Piave to write the libretto. Piave had worked with Verdi on such operas as Hernani, Stifelio, Rigoletto, 
and most recently La Traviata, written four years earlier. After the disastrous premiere of Simon Boccanegra in Venice, the opera was applauded in Reggio Emilia, Naples, and Rome. But it was poorly received at La Scala, and by 1861 had disappeared from the operatic repertoire. Why was it a fiasco? Well, first of all, the libretto was a problem. Based on a complex and sprawling play, the plot was confusing. Musically, the opera was not in keeping with traditional taste. It was less lyrical than audiences expected, with many conversational declamatory passages, passages we now consider advanced. The mood of the opera was also a problem. The abundance of minor keys made it somber, as did the preponderance of lower voices. The two leading characters, Simone and Fiesco, are a baritone and bass, respectively. One critic at the premiere reported that the opera was heavy and severe, with a lugubrious atmosphere. Years later, Verdi himself called his first version of the opera troppo triste, troppo desolante, too sad, too gloomy. Verdi went on to write La Forza del Destino and Don Carlo. He revised Macbeth and Forza, and in 1871 composed Aida. Through the years, his publisher Giulio Ricordi occasionally suggested revising Simon Boccanegra, but Verdi refused. Ricordi did convince him, however, to consider writing an opera based on Shakespeare's Othello, with Arrigo Boito as librettist. Boito, who was almost thirty years younger than Verdi, was not only a poet and journalist much respected in the literary circles of Milan, but also the composer of Mephistofele and the librettist for Punchelli's La Gioconda. Although Verdi refused to make a commitment about Othello, he and Boito began corresponding about the problems of adapting the play to operatic form. In 1880, the Othello project was temporarily shelved, so Verdi and Boito could begin work on a revised version of Simon Boccanegra. It was to be presented at La Scala later that season. The outlook for the new season at La Scala was grim, and Verdi felt it was in everyone's best interest that the opera company survive. But the survival of La Scala was probably just one of the reasons why Verdi decided to revise Simon Boccanegra. He had long cherished this opera and felt it had great potential. Revising it would keep the ideals of the Risorgimento alive, and it would also give him the chance to test Boito as a librettist before making a final decision about Othello. Boito immediately grasped the problems presented by the Boccanegra libretto. He gave the characters greater depth, particularly Simone and Fiesco, the characters Verdi was most concerned about. The librettist made numerous minor changes and slightly altered the storyline, but despite his efforts, the plot remains rather muddled. Boito also suggested adding two spectacular scenes. The first, set in the Church of San Siro, was rejected by Verdi because he felt that composing this particular scene would entail too much of his time. The second was the council chamber scene, based on an idea that Verdi had proposed to Ricordi. It would become one of the greatest scenes in opera. The revisions Verdi made in the Boccanegra score were more extensive than those he made for any other opera. During the twenty-four years separating the two versions, the composer's style had become more subtle and refined. He had made giant strides in his understanding of orchestral color. The changes he made ranged from a few phrases of recitative to an entire scene. The revised Simon Boccanegra triumphed when it premiered at La Scala on March 24, 1881, and this is the version performed today. The overall mood of the 1881 opera is warm rather than lugubrious. 
but the sadness is inescapable. Verdi himself said, It's sad because it has to be sad, but it's gripping. It's not only gripping, but masterly. The sheer beauty and originality of the music, the depth of the emotions, the highly theatrical scenes, the intensity and irony of the drama, and above all, the profound message of peace embodied in the person of Simon Bocanegra, one of Verdi's greatest characters. These are the elements that make this opera a masterpiece. The plot is based on actual people and events. In Genoa, the mid-14th century was a time of political strife between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Historically, and in the opera, the people and their doge were Ghibellines. The nobles were Guelphs. As I discuss the story, I'll refer to the nobles as either patricians or Guelphs, depending on the text. During this period of domestic unrest, the Republic of Genoa was also plagued by external forces. It was a time of war against other Italian city-states, and battles against African pirates who threatened the shores of Genoa. A man named Egidio Bocanegra cleared Italian waters of those pirates. His brother, Simon Bocanegra, was a businessman and a major political figure. Although the brothers were members of the minor nobility, Simone sided with the plebeians, the People's Party, against the patricians of Genoa. In 1339, he was chosen by the people as the first doge of Genoa. After trying in vain to balance the interests of the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, he retired, but was recalled from retirement in 1356 as a reform candidate. During his second reign, he maintained relative peace within the city and between Genoa and other Italian republics. He was a man known for his clemency, and yet he had enemies, particularly among the patricians. In 1363, after a banquet honoring the king of Cyprus, Simone died, and it was assumed he was poisoned by rebellious nobles. In the opera, the title character combines the two brothers— Verdi Simone is a corsair, the commander of an armed private vessel commissioned by the Genoese Republic to fight against naval and commercial enemy vessels. Before the opera begins, he has cleared Genoa's shores of pirates, and as a result, is popular with the people. The opera consists of a prologue and three acts. As I discuss it, I'll refer to the opera as Bocanegra, and the title character as Simone or as the Doge. In Italian, when both his first and last names are used, the E at the end of Simone is dropped for the sake of euphony. The prologue is set in a square in Genoa where the palace of the Fieschi family is located. The year is 1339. Verdi's original prelude was a rather traditional piece based on themes from the opera. The composer wrote a new orchestral opening for the 1881 Bocanegra. It lasts only 26 measures, and it's a piece of exceptional warmth and originality. Listen to the limpid beauty of the melody, tinged with sadness, and the gentle rocking motion that suggests the sea. This is the first of several images of the sea that occur throughout the opera. As the curtain goes up, Paolo, a goldsmith and plebeian leader, is conversing with Pietro, another prominent plebeian, about nominating a candidate of the people as the city's first doge. Pietro has mentioned the name of Lorenzino, a moneylender, 
a character who never appears in the opera. Paolo suggests the popular corsair, Simon Bocanegra, and promises gold and power to Pietro if he will deliver the people's vote for Simone. This entire opening conversation is sung softly, lending an air of intrigue to the text, and it's interspersed with the opening music we've just heard, giving the scene unity. When Pietro goes off to gather the plebeians, Paolo is left alone. In just one line, he reveals his lust for power, saying that he loathes the patricians and will rise above them by helping Simon Bocanegra become Doge. As we'll hear, this line is declaimed almost entirely on one note over an imposing accompaniment by low woodwinds, brass, and timpani based on the opening music. In contrast to Paolo's threatening line, Simone's entrance is announced by light staccato strings. This isn't the grand entrance one would expect of the hero and future doge, but rather music that immediately establishes the human proportions of the character. We begin as Paolo exults at the thought of power. Then Simone hurries in and asks why Paolo has sent for him. In this recording, baritone Piero Capuccilli sings Simone, and bass baritone José Van Damme, Paolo. In the brief exchange between Simone and Paolo, Simone refuses to be considered as a candidate for Doge, until Paolo mentions Maria's name. Maria, who doesn't appear in the opera, is the daughter of a nobleman named Fiesco. She bore Simone's child out of wedlock, and ever since her father has imprisoned her in the Fieschi family palace. When Paolo speaks her name, Simone responds, O oh, innocent victim of my fatal love. In setting that single comment to music, Verdi captured the depth of Simone's love for Maria and his sadness at having caused her such suffering. O vittima innocente del funesto amor mio. Simone isn't interested in power or glory, but he realizes that the position of Doge will make it possible for him to release Maria from her father's palace and at long last to marry her. For that reason, and only that reason, Simone accepts. Paolo mentions that he wants a share in the power. Simone agrees, then leaves. Pietro arrives with a group of commoners and informs them that the moneylender Lorenzino has sold out to the patricians, in effect preparing the way for Paolo to convince them to accept Simone as their candidate. The people pledge their support and promise to return at daybreak to proclaim Simone Doge. The crowd disperses, and the mood becomes somber as Fiesco emerges from the palace. He is mourning his daughter Maria, who has just died. He claims that he will leave his family's palace forever, calling it the cold sepulchre of his angel, and he reproaches the Virgin Mary for not saving his child. In his aria, Il Lacerato Spirito, meaning the wounded spirit of this heartbroken father, 
Fiesco expresses his grief in a series of short phrases, fragments of anguish accompanied by solemn brass chords. From the palace come the offstage sounds of women lamenting, e morta, she has died, and monks praying, miserere, have mercy. This is the first of many offstage choruses in the opera, a device which serves to enlarge the scope of the particular scene. As the aria continues, Fiesco asks his daughter to pray for him. His need for consolation is made eminently clear by the melody he sings, a melody more lyrical than the fragmented expression of grief that precedes it. Verdi said that the role of Fiesco requires a voice of iron, a deep voice with something in it of the inexorable, the prophetic, the sepulchral. Bass Nikolai Gyarov sings Fiesco. Simone returns, unaware that Maria has died. Ironically, he's overjoyed at the prospect of finally claiming her as his bride. Fiesco confronts him, and the duet that follows is a highly skillful depiction of the two characters and their relationship to one another. Structurally, this duet balances another between the same characters that will take place in the last act. Both duets are marked by Verdi's characteristic vigor and emotional directness. Fiesco is unyielding, unforgiving. With implacable fury, he calls down the wrath of heaven upon Simone. Fiesco's vocal line is taut, rife with dotted notes, sung over a turbulent orchestral accompaniment. Simone is a more gentle character. His vocal line barely moves as he begs for Fiesco's forgiveness over a pleading melody in the orchestra, an orchestra infinitely more supple than that accompanying Fiesco. Listen to the explosion of sound as Fiesco confronts Simone. Oh, 
Simone tells Fiesco that he has accepted the position of Doge in order to marry Maria. Refusing to pardon him, Fiesco reiterates his undying hatred for the man who dishonored his daughter. Pace, pleads Simone. Peace. He offers Fiesco his life, saying that if Fiesco kills him, then all this anger will die with him. This line is the first revelation of Simone as peacemaker, the key to his character. After a long pause, and pauses, by the way, are frequently used for dramatic effect in this opera, Fiesco says he will pardon Simone only if Simone will bring him the granddaughter Fiesco has never seen. In the ensuing racconto, or narrative, Simone tells Fiesco about the fate of his daughter. Years earlier, when the child was born, Simone arranged for her to live with an elderly woman in a seaside cottage and would visit them between voyages. As Simone tells his story to the motion of the sea and the strings, his vocal line is tender and melancholy, reflecting both his love for his daughter and his sadness over her fate. The narrative is typical of the deeply personal quality of his music. pace quickens as Simone explains that on one of his visits he found the house locked and the old woman dead. There was no trace of the child, and Simone has tried to find her ever since. Fiesco refuses to forgive his daughter's lover, and then, cruelly, lets Simone discover for himself that Maria has died. We resume as Simone goes into the palace. Unknown to him, Fiesco is watching. As Simone searches for Maria, an eloquent melody in the strings expresses his love for her. Then he cries out her name when he discovers her body, while Fiesco gloats over what he terms his hour of retribution. Ironically, as Simone staggers out of the palace in shock, saying this must all be an atrocious dream, the people are heard shouting Boca Negra in the distance as they acclaim their new doge. Their music intentionally verges on the banal, providing a jarring contrast to Simone's terrible discovery. Paolo and Pietro enter leading the people, and Simone cries out, Paolo, una tomba, a tomb. Paolo's reply, un trono, a throne. 
The people hail Simone and bells ring out as the prologue ends. But this moment of political glory seems nothing more than a wrenching intrusion on his personal agony. Act one takes place 25 years after the prologue. Simone is still Doge of Genoa, and the civil strife between plebeians and patricians has continued through the years. Fiesco is the leader of the secret Guelph or patrician conspiracy against the Doge. He has long been a fugitive from the government and has assumed the name Andrea. From this point on, I'll refer to him as Andrea until his true identity is revealed in the last act. Andrea is also the guardian of a supposed orphan named Amelia Grimaldi. The Grimaldis, along with the Fieschi and Adorno families, are prominent patricians. The first act is in two scenes. Scene one is set in the garden of the Grimaldi palace overlooking the sea. The orchestral introduction is a tone poem describing the sea at dawn. The breezes and the lapping of the waves are depicted by trills in the violins and rippling figures in the woodwinds, creating a sound picture as translucent as a Monet painting. Amelia Grimaldi awaits her lover, a patrician named Gabriele Adorno. In an aria entitled Cominquistora Bruna, in this dark hour, she marvels at the sight of the moon and the sea in the pre-dawn hours. The piccolo, flute, and clarinet describe the shimmer of light on the water, as pulsating strings emulate the motion of the waves. The melody Amelia sings reflects her femininity and youth. Throughout the opera, her music softens and balances the virility that characterizes this score. Since the melody of the aria is from 1857 and the orchestral accompaniment from 1881, this aria reveals both the lyricism of early Verdi and the ingenious scoring of his mature years. Soprano Mirella Freni is Amelia.
As the aria continues, Amelia recalls another dark night when an old woman on her deathbed blessed her. Amelia vows that the pomp of her present life will never obliterate memories of her humble beginnings. The sound of Gabriele's voice is heard from afar, serenading Amelia, much like Manrico and Trovatore. Accompanied by a backstage harp, Gabriele sings that riches and power cannot satisfy one if the heart lacks love. Hearing her lover's voice, Amelia expresses her excitement in a long ecstatic phrase sung between verses of his serenade. When Gabriele enters, Amelia tells him that she has seen him meeting late at night with her guardian Andrea and with Lorenzino, the moneylender mentioned in the prologue. Since Gabriele's father was killed in battle against the Doge, the son is involved in the patrician conspiracy against Simone. Amelia expresses her concern for Gabriele's safety, but he interrupts, saying they cannot risk being overheard. The mood changes as Amelia tells him to look out across the sea at the towers of Genoa, and the lovers begin their duet. In keeping with 19th-century operatic tradition, Verdi wrote the duet in two sections. The first, called the Cavatina, is the slower, more lyrical one. The second, the Cabaletta, is faster and more virtuoso in style. The lover's Cavatina is accompanied by strings and low woodwind trills depicting the sea. Pietro enters and announces the imminent arrival of the Doge. Amelia tells Gabriele that the Doge wants to arrange a marriage for her and urges him to find Andrea immediately to ask permission to marry her. The cabaletta of the lovers' duet, with its overlapping phrases, captures their delight as they sing of their coming marriage. Tenor Jose Carreras sings the role of Gabriele. <laughs> When Gabriele asks Andrea for Amelia's hand in marriage, Andrea tells him that Amelia is an orphan and not a member of the prominent Grimaldi family. He explains that the original Amelia Grimaldi died many years ago. Her brothers had been exiled by the Doge, and with the daughter deceased, the family fortune would have been confiscated by the government. In order to protect the Grimaldi inheritance, an orphan from a convent was adopted and named Amelia by Andrea and the patricians. He has been her guardian ever since. To Gabriele, Amelia's background means nothing. He genuinely loves her and wants to marry her. The scene between Andrea and Gabriele originally ended with an oath as the two patricians vowed to fight together against the Doge. Verdi told Boito he wanted to delete the oath because he explained... It is too fierce and says nothing. I would rather instead that Fiesco, who is like a father to Amelia, bless the future bride and groom. It could produce a touching moment, which would be a ray of light amid so much gloom. Verdi's decision to substitute a blessing for the oath makes Andrea a more complete character, revealing, as it does, that he can be a loving father figure, as well as the severe man of the prologue. 
He intones a blessing that is quasi-liturgical in style, accompanied by sustained, organ-like chords in the orchestra. Gabriele's response verges on the ecstatic as he says that Andrea's words are a holy echo of ancient times. Andrea and Gabriele leave as offstage trumpets announce the arrival of the Doge. The ensuing duet between Simone and Amelia is one of Verdi's most eloquent and deeply moving scenes. When composing the 1881 revision, Verdi wrote two letters to Boito about this scene, letters giving us insight into his thinking. The first regards a line in the original duet in which Simone talks about giving Amelia a halo, laureola in Italian. Verdi asked Boito to change that word, adding, I am not difficult about words, but in a cantabile, au and eo produce a nasal, guttural, unpleasant sound. Boito changed laureola to gloria. In another letter, Verdi asked his librettist to add a few lines about the exiled Grimaldi brothers in order to clarify the story. He went on to say, You always write beautiful lines, but here it would not matter to me if they were ugly. Forgive the heresy. I believe that in the theater, just as it is sometimes commendable for composers not to make music, but to show a talent for self-effacement, so it is sometimes better for poets to write, instead of a beautiful line, a plain and theatrical word. It was a philosophy he often preached to his librettists. As the scene between Simone and Amelia begins, he tells her that he pardons her brothers, even though the Grimaldis have refused to accept his authority. He goes on to ask her hand in marriage for Paolo, who is now the doge's chief aide. Amelia tells Simone that Paolo is interested only in her money. Then she confides that she's in love and tells the doge about her background. We'll resume listening as Amelia says, Non sono una Grimaldi. I'm not a Grimaldi. In a narrative that parallels Simone in the prologue, she tells the doge that she was an orphan raised by an old woman in a seaside cottage near Pisa. The oboe, played dolcissimo, very sweetly according to Verdi's markings, introduces Amelia's narrative with a nostalgic melody that seems almost a series of whimpers.
Amelia tells the Doge that the old woman gave her a portrait of her late mother, and Simone begins to hope that Amelia is the daughter he has long sought. The tempo quickens as he questions her. Each of his questions is pitched higher, with a pause after each question, heightening the suspense. Simone asks if a seafarer came to visit, if the old woman's name was Giovanna, if Amelia's real name is Maria, if the portrait he carries matches that of her mother. Her answer to each question is affirmative. The music surges to a huge fortissimo as Simone says, Ma braccia figlia mia, embrace me, my daughter. Rapturously, he and Amelia rejoice in the moment each has longed for, over an orchestral decrescendo that gently releases the tension of this emotional outpouring. In the final section of the duet, the cabaletta, Simone tells Amelia that heaven itself opens up when he calls her daughter, and the luster of his crown will be her glory. La gloria tua sarà. The melody is tenderness itself, deeply expressive of the joy of his fatherhood. Amelia answers that she'll always be near him. Originally, her vocal line was identical to his, but in 1881, Verdi wrote a different melody for Amelia, younger, more buoyant and exuberant. The rhythmic pattern of the first measure she sings parallels that of her father, linking the two while giving each a melody appropriate to the character. We'll resume listening with Simone's questions, and I'll point out the beginning of the cabaletta. Cabaletta begins.
Simone tells Amelia to keep their relationship a secret, hoping to conceal his daughter's identity, because he's afraid that his enemies might try to influence him by harming her. As the duet ends, the harp, clarinet, and bassoon, along with horns and pizzicato strings, accompany Amelia's exit, and Simone once again expresses his joy with a single word, figlia, daughter. Ironically, Paolo intrudes on Simone's rapture, asking, what was her answer? His question is jolting, particularly vis-a-vis the tenderness that precedes it. Simone orders Paolo to forget about marrying Amelia, then leaves. Left alone, Paolo grumbles, Have you forgotten you owe your throne to me? Pietro enters, and the scene ends with a rapid exchange between the two men as the enraged Paolo tells Pietro to abduct Amelia and bring her to Lorenzino's palace. Since Paolo knows that Lorenzino has been in touch with the patrician conspirators, he plans to blackmail him into cooperating with the abduction. In the 1857 Bocanegra, scene two was a ceremony celebrating Simone's 25th anniversary as Doge. The scene included a festive chorus, a barcarolle, a hymn to the doge, and a dance by African corsairs. Simone was little more than a spectator. The celebration was interrupted by the arrival of Gabriele and Andrea protesting Amelia's abduction, and the story continued from there. Verdi was concerned about this scene from the very beginning, even before Boito began work on the libretto. In a letter to Ricordi, written in November 1880, the composer said that something exciting was needed, something that would give variety and greater life to the drama. I recall two superb letters of Petrarch, wrote Verdi, referring to the great 14th-century Italian poet. One letter was written to the Doge Boccanegra, the other to the Doge of Venice, telling them that they were about to engage in fratricidal strife, that both were sons of the same mother, Italy, etc. How wonderful this feeling for an Italian fatherland back in those days! All this is politics, not drama, but a man of resource could make drama out of it. The composer went on to suggest a scene in which Simone would convene the Senate or a private council to discuss the letter, a scene that would include, in Verdi's words, horror on everyone's part, rhetorical speeches, fits of anger, even accusations of treason against the doge, etc., etc. Boito made drama of Verdi's ideas, and together they created the highly theatrical council chamber scene, a profound study in human relations and political idealism. The subject is Italian unity, but the overriding message is that of universal brotherhood. Simone is at the center of the action, trying to reconcile opposing factions within his council, and in turn, to resolve the conflict between Genoa and Venice. Historically, the two maritime city-states were rivals in trade during the Middle Ages. 
The scene is set in the council chamber of the Doge's palace. Both the music and text are 1881, with the exception of Amelia's narrative, and even that has been revised. As the scene opens, the Doge is addressing his council of twelve plebeians and twelve patricians. After taking care of a routine proposal, he presents a letter from Petrarch, urging Genoa to make peace with Venice. Paolo interrupts, saying that the poet should attend to his rhymes. When the councillors demand war with Venice, Simone compares them to the biblical Cain. As we'll hear, Simone says that the two city-states have a common fatherland, anno patria comune, a statement that clearly reflects Verdi's commitment to the Risorgimento. The councillors insist that Genoa is their fatherland. Suddenly, the tempo speeds up as rebels are heard in the distance, barely audible at first, and the orchestra introduces a turbulent motif. That motif, the music of the people, will dominate the scene, appearing eleven times, louder each time, intertwined with the dialogue going on in the council chamber. Simone looks out the window, sees a mob pursuing Gabriele, and says that a Guelph, who turns out to be Andrea, is fighting by his side. The Doge in the room. Anyone who flees is a traitor, proclaims the Doge. Paolo stops. The sound of the rioters is louder, and their words become audible. Death to the patricians, long live the people. Verdi wanted to be sure that these words would be understood, and said that the orchestra should rage, but rage softly. The offstage chorus is used to fine effect here, making the people a real political force, and opening up the scene to create the impression that hordes are rushing toward the palace. Their chorus alternates with that of the councillors within the chamber, as the patricians draw their swords, and the plebeians follow suit. From the square, the people demand the death of the doge. Simone orders the herald to open the palace doors and tell the crowd that he has heard their death threat, and he awaits them. Then Simone orders the councillors to sheathe their swords as the crowd raucously continues its threats ever more loudly. The trumpets in the orchestra sound, followed by the herald's trumpet offstage, again enlarging the framework of the scene. Then, nothing but a muffled drum roll. The near silence creates overwhelming tension, coming as it does after the prolonged crescendo of sound that preceded it. The herald's voice cannot be heard, only the people's response to his message. From off stage they hail the doge, and Simone calls out, Ecco le plebi, behold the people. The orchestra surges with a fortissimo statement of the people's motif as the crowd, still pursuing Gabriele, rushes into the chamber shouting, Vendetta, vengeance. We resume listening with the sound of trumpets in the orchestra, followed by the herald's trumpet offstage. Oh, oh. 
Gabriele tells Simone that he killed Lorenzino for abducting Amelia, and just before Lorenzino died, he told Gabriele that a powerful person forced the abduction. Gabriele accuses the doge and rushes to stab him, only to be stopped by Amelia. Amelia is not an ordinary heroine. Unimpressed by her aristocratic lifestyle, she's strong in her commitment to peace, unshakable in her loyalty to her father and her love for Gabriele, even when that love means a confrontation with the doge. Immediately after saving Simone's life, she begs him to spare Gabriele. The doge tells the guards to release the young man and then asks Amelia to tell him what happened. In a narrative, she describes her abduction. Seized while walking along the beach, she was imprisoned in Lorenzino's home. When she threatened to report this to the doge himself, Lorenzino unlocked the doors, and she escaped. She hints that Paolo is responsible, only to be interrupted by turmoil as each political faction blames the other for her abduction. They all draw swords. As we'll hear, Simone stops the fighting with a single word, fratricidi, fratricides, a word which Verdi instructed to be sung powerfully. An equally powerful orchestral descent leads into Simone's aria. The aria is a luminous testament to Simone's ideals and indirectly to Verdi's. Here Simone speaks as head of state, yet his aria is intensely personal, a sensitive expression of his most profound beliefs. He begins by addressing all his people, plebe, patrizi, popolo della feroce storia, plebeians, patricians, people with a savage history. The vocal line is marked con maesta, to be sung majestically. Heavy accents punctuate the text as he calls them all heirs to hatred. Unexpectedly, his melody becomes sweet, the string accompaniment warm, as he tells them that the kingdom of the seas invites them to glory. Again an instant change, a sudden crescendo, as he accuses them of tearing at one another's hearts. Offbeat accents in the orchestra sound like hammer blows. key changes and the tempo slows down as Simone says he weeps for the peaceful hillside where olive branches bloom in vain. Verdi instructs the baritone to sing this passage expressively and on the word germoglia, bloom, to sing it sweetly. The aria reaches its climax with a passionate plea as Simone says, Evo gridando pace, evo gridando amor. To you I cry out peace, to you I cry out love softly repeating his last words. 
We resume as Simone says he weeps for the peaceful hillside. Simone's aria leads right into a concertato, one of those ensembles so loved by Verdi. When writing to Boito about the scene, Verdi suggested that Amelia say, Peace, pardon, they are our brothers. The composer continued, In this new little stanza, don't forget the word peace, which pleases me very much. Verdi wrote a radiant melody for Amelia as she sings Pace, Peace, a melody of haunting delicacy that dominates the ensemble. Gabriele expresses relief that Amelia is alive. Andrea bemoans Genoa's fate under the plebeians. Paolo and Pietro discuss how to escape before their treachery is discovered, while the people softly express their wonder at the doge's ability to calm their anger. Later in the ensemble, Simone reiterates his plea for peace and love. When the ensemble ends, Gabriele offers his sword to Simone. The doge refuses to accept it, 
but tells the young man he will be detained in prison just overnight until the plot against the doge is unraveled. Then Simone turns to Paolo and calls his name, according to Verdi's instructions, con forza terribile, with terrible force. The orchestra comments in unison with a menacing trill that foreshadows the scoring of Iago's credo in Otello. The doge demands Paolo's help in finding the traitor, then growls, Sia maledetto, cursing the person who abducted Amelia. He knows full well that it's Paolo, yet orders him to repeat the curse, in effect forcing him to take part in his own malediction. A three-note chromatic figure, slithering in the bass clarinet, accompanies the curse. The chorus loudly repeats the curse, echoing it in a near whisper, softer and softer. Suddenly, Paolo shouts, Horror! and a huge fortissimo erupts in the orchestra, bringing Act One to a close. Here is Simone's malediction. highly theatrical ending to a splendid scene, a scene that gives Simone's stature as a man of state. By adding this scene to the original, Boito and Verdi virtually recreated the character of Simone, making him a strong leader who shows courage and generosity of spirit, a magnanimous soul, not one who seeks power for self-aggrandizement, but one who uses power wisely for the sake of peace, a good ruler. Verdi cared about the concept of the good ruler, and just two years after composing the original Bocca Negra, he depicted one in the character of Ricardo in Un Ballo in Maschera. Yet the emphasis in Ballo is on Ricardo's personal life. In Bocca Negra, the domestic and political realms are intertwined, and Simone's strengths as doge emanate from his virtues as a human being. Those virtues were established in the prologue before Simone became ruler. The goodness, the love, the desire for peace and reconciliation the contempt for glory, qualities that carry over from his personal life to his public one. Verdi claimed that the singer who portrays Simone needs passion, composure, and a quality of authority on stage. He added that the role was as tiring as Rigoletto, but a thousand times more difficult. Act Two, set in the Doge's quarters in the Ducal Palace, opens with a brief exchange between Paolo and Pietro. Paolo is angry because Simone has deprived him of Amelia and her money. <laughs> <laughs> 
He orders Pietro to bring Gabriele and Andrea to him. As you know, Gabriele was imprisoned during the council chamber scene, but the only reason for Andrea's imprisonment is that Boito wanted him there, so Andrea wouldn't be implicated in the plot against the Doge. The librettist explained, It is useful for us that Fiesco not take an active part in the revolt of the Guelphs, making him guilty of yet another offense against the Doge, and the best way of preventing this is to keep him under lock and key. Pietro goes off, and Paolo, alone for a moment, recalls being forced to curse himself. His words are introduced by the malediction music from the preceding scene, followed by the chromatic figure in the bass clarinet, also heard earlier, linking Acts 1 and 2. Paolo takes out a vial of poison and pours it into the doge's goblet, over the chromatic figure. From this point on, that figure becomes the poison motif, connecting Simone's curse with Paolo's decision to poison the doge. As the scene progresses, Paolo's obsession with vengeance unfolds. Killing Simone once doesn't seem to be enough. He wants to kill him again and again. Not only does he poison the goblet, but he tries to involve Andrea in the assassination plot, convinces Gabriele to kill the doge, and finally even joins his enemies, the patricians, in an uprising against Simone. When Andrea and Gabriele are led in from prison, Paolo tries to persuade Andrea to kill the doge. In music of great dignity, Andrea refuses, then goes back to his jail cell. Turning to Gabriele, Paolo says that Amelia is in the palace with the doge, insinuating she has become Simone's mistress. Paolo exits quickly, leaving Gabriele alone. From this point on, Gabriele is the focal point of the second act, with a double aria, a duet with Amelia, and finally a trio in which the doge joins the lovers. Gabriele grows from the conventional romantic figure of the first act to a more complex and less naive character. His growth is important to the story because it justifies Simone's appointment of Gabriele as Doge at the end of the opera. The first part of Gabriele's aria, written in 1857, demonstrates that Verdi had mastered the art of expressing revenge and jealousy early in his career. Sento avampar nell'anima furrente gelosia, sings Gabriele. I feel the fire of jealousy blazing in my soul. The fast tempo, the rushing strings, the series of descending fragments that make up the melody, all these elements capture the rage of a volatile young man who thinks he's been betrayed. What we've just heard has the energy Latina. In effect, Verdi went against tradition by reversing the normal order of a double aria, putting the fast movement first. In the Cavatina, the tempo slows down to a largo. Gabriele's pain becomes palpable, his character more sensitive and sympathetic as he weeps, then prays, Cielo pietoso, rendila. Merciful heaven, bring her back to me. Come and 
Amelia enters, and in her duet with Gabriele she admits that the Doge loves her, saying that the reason for the Doge's love must remain a secret for a little while longer. As we'll hear, Gabriele begs for reassurance in an anguished melody and says that her silence is like a shroud. His next phrase peaks high in the voice like an outcry as he pleads, Dammi la vita, give me life, or death I disdain your pity. The key changes from minor to major as Amelia asks him to trust her. The vocal line is marked dolcissimo, to be sung very, very sweetly. When trumpets announce the arrival of the doge, Amelia urges Gabriele to hide. Simone enters, and noticing that Amelia has been crying, he's concerned about her. When he realizes that she loves his enemy, however, the tempo speeds up to an allegro agitato. She begs him to pardon Gabriele. Since Simone doesn't want to lose his daughter, he says he will pardon Gabriele if the young man repents. Wondering what his adversaries will think about granting pardon to an enemy, Simone says that severity would be a sign of fear. Alone and exhausted, Simone drinks from the goblet, unaware that it contains poison. Ironically, he remarks that even water is bitter on the lips of the man who rules. Then he falls asleep. The dream music that follows is based on the cabaletta from the father-daughter scene in the first act, here played by the flute and clarinet against sixteenth notes high in the violins that make the passage mesmerizing. Simone murmurs in his sleep that Amelia loves his enemy. Gabriele approaches the sleeping Simone and is about to stab him when Amelia intervenes. Simone awakens and in an angry dialogue reveals that he is Amelia's father. This revelation precipitates a trio. Brief but rich in sheer lyricism and expressivity, 
the trio begins as Gabriele begs Amelia to forgive him for his jealousy. He tells Simone he dares not look at him, and in a rising phrase drenched with remorse, Gabriele says that Simone should condemn him to death. As the doge decides to spare Gabriele's life for the sake of peace within the city, Amelia prays to her mother for protection, completing the trio. Patrician rebels are heard in the distance, gradually becoming louder as they near the doge's palace. Their call to arms is unaccompanied, the rhythm taut, the scene fraught with tension as Simone and Gabriele converse in snatches of dialogue over the propulsive drive of the advancing rebels' chorus. Simone tells Gabriele to go and join his comrades. Gabriele's answer, never again. He pledges loyalty to the doge, who, in turn, grants permission for him to marry Amelia. The chorus of rebels builds to an offstage fortissimo, and Simone and Gabriele unite in their own call to arms as the orchestra brings the second act to a close. <laughs> Between this act and the next, the rebels are defeated. Paolo is arrested for his part in the conspiracy and condemned to death by the doge. We never know what happens to Pietro after Paolo is arrested. For that matter, neither did Boito and Verdi. In a letter to Verdi about the dialogue between Andrea and Paolo, Boito wrote, The other apostle Pietro we can forget about. No one will ever notice. There are other puzzling elements in the plot. In the council chamber scene, for instance, how does Simone know that a Guelph is with Gabriele and yet not realize that Andrea is really Fiesco? And as I've already discussed, putting Andrea in prison has nothing to do with the logic of the plot. 
On the whole, when it comes to some murky details in the text, I think it best to take Boito's advice and not notice. Act three is set in the Doge's palace, as the prelude ends an offstage chorus hails the Doge's victory over the rebels. The captain of the guard frees Andrea and tells him that the Guelphs have been defeated. Paolo enters, surrounded by guards. He has been condemned to death for his role in the patrician revolt. As we'll hear, the orchestra recalls the poison motif as Paolo tells Andrea that he has poisoned Simone. When Andrea denounces him, Paolo tells him that Simone might even die before Paolo is executed. The last note of this line gives way to an unaccompanied chorus sung offstage in celebration of the wedding of Amelia and Gabriele. Paolo cringes at the sound of the chorus, and as he admits arranging Amelia's abduction, the ethereal wedding music provides a stunning contrast to the villainy of his comments. After Paolo is led off to his execution, Andrea has a brief soliloquy in which he says this was not the vengeance he sought, and decides the time has come to confront Simone. A herald appears, and Andrea hides. From the balcony the herald proclaims that by order of the doge all festive lights in the city are to be extinguished, out of respect for those who died in battle. Ironically, this darkness, a symbol of mourning, will honor the doge himself. Simone enters to the sound of the poison motif and says that his head burns and he feels feverish. He looks out over the water and takes comfort in the view. Tremolo strings and a trilling flute suggest the sea breeze as Simone says that the blessed air brings him relief. Over a rocking motion in the lower strings, he sings a brief arioso that begins, Il mare, il mare, the sea, the sea. The doge is the seafarer once again, looking back on a more tranquil past, murmuring that the view brings back happy memories as the orchestra repeats the melody of his arioso. Yet, even in this serene moment, his music is tinged with sadness.
Remembering the glory of his seafaring days, Simone wishes the sea might have been his tomb. Andrea intrudes on Simone's reverie, saying it would have been better for him if that wish had come true. Their ensuing duet balances their confrontation in the prologue. Andrea tells Simone that he will die amid the ghosts of those he has conquered. At that moment, the lights of the city begin to go out gradually, becoming a metaphor for Simone's death. At first, the doge doesn't recognize his old adversary, but when he does, he's overjoyed, because at long last he can fulfill Fiesco's request to see his granddaughter. Fiesco, of course, is unaware that Simone has been reunited with his daughter, and can think only about vengeance. As we'll hear, Fiesco describes himself as a phantom there to avenge an ancient wrong, a threat delivered in rugged, irregular, heavily accented music. Simone offers him peace in a warm and gentle phrase that's typical of this character. When Fiesco learns the truth about Amelia's parentage, he breaks down completely. That breakdown is embodied in music remarkable for its emotional directness. First, a fortissimo shock, followed by orchestral sobs, repeated 27 times. Years of hatred are washed away in this wrenching passage as Fiesco realizes that Amelia is his granddaughter. These are the tears of a stern man facing his own righteousness. We'll resume as Simone tells Fiesco that Amelia Grimaldi bears the name of her deceased mother, then the fortissimo chord as Fiesco grasps the truth and asks himself why he has understood that truth too late, and finally the series of orchestral sobs during which Simone gently asks why Fiesco is crying. Embracing Fiesco, Simone asks to be forgiven. The distraught Fiesco tells Simone that Paolo has poisoned him. Even here, Simone's only concern is for Amelia. He wants to bless her once more. The newlyweds enter with an entourage of guests, senators, pages, noblemen, and their ladies. Amelia is delighted to learn that Fiesco is her grandfather, but her joy is momentary. Gently, Simone tells her that he's dying. The final quartet begins as Simone asks God to bless the newlyweds, and for their sake to change the thorns of his martyrdom into flowers. The melody floats high in the voice and orchestra, reflecting the fragility of the doge. 
In an expansive phrase, Amelia says that he must not die, and Gabriele expresses his distress at losing the man he now calls father. Fiesco completes the quartet saying that the human heart is a font of endless tears, a line that describes Simone's personal life. The wedding guests join in as Amelia sings a lament based on syncopated triplets that descend slowly, resembling a cry of grief. Her lament dominates the ensemble. After the ensemble, despite the emotional intensity of the closing scene, it's imbued with stillness, with a sense of void. The Doge orders the senators to appoint Gabriele his successor and tells Fiesco to make sure his final wish is carried out. The last word Simone utters is Maria. Then blessing the couple again, he dies peacefully. From the balcony, Fiesco tells the people of Genoa to acclaim Gabriele Adorno as their Doge. No, Boccanegra, they answer. Fiesco tells them that Simone Boccanegra has died. Softly they pray, Pace per lui, peace be upon him, as a bell tolls in the distance.
Ironically, Simone dies on the day he brings an end to civil unrest, and moments after he's reconciled with Fiesco. It is for others to enjoy what he calls the flowers of his martyrdom. That is the tragedy of Simon Bocanegra, a gentle character who embodies goodness, caring, and compassion, a powerful man of state who symbolizes Verdi's ideals of peace and unity, ideals not only for the composer's beloved Italy, but for all nations, for all time. Thank you so much for listening to episode 25 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you will take a moment to leave a comment or a review in iTunes or consider donating to the continuation of the podcast at metguild.org podcast. To stay up to date on Met Guild events and fun opera content, you can follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild on all major social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr, and we have lots of great interesting posts and photos there to explore. That's all for today. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to being with you next week. <laughs>